Welcome back to SideQuest episode 40. And today we have a special guest with us, uh, Dr. Richard, Richard Allen Bartle, PhD, who co-wrote the first virtual world MUD multi-user design in 1978, thus being at the forefront of the online gaming industry from its very inception. A former university lecturer in artificial intelligence, he is an influential writer on all aspects of the virtual world design and development. As an independent consultant, he has worked with almost every major online gaming company in the UK and the US over the past 20 years and more years now. And Richard lives with his wife, Gail, and two children, Jennifer and Madeline. I know this is an old book, so I don't know if that's changed, in a village just outside Colchester, England. He works in virtual worlds. And of course, you, you have a PhD from the University of Exit. Essex from uh, 1988 in artificial intelligence, and uh, you were telling us just before the show you you have read designing or you've read you wrote designing virtual worlds, but since then you've written several other books as well. And so, w welcome. We welcome you heartily, uh, Mr. Wesley Chance, and I welcome you to the show, Rich. Hello, it's, it's good to be here. Yes, I, I should just point out in the introduction you said MUD stood for multi-user design. It stood for multi-user dungeon. I'm just saying oh, that. Excuse so, me. Oh, no, no, it's all right. You're probably reading because the, the book was called um, Designing Virtual Worlds. So the word design was hanging around in your head there. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to call it The Design of Virtual Worlds, but the publisher said no book with the in the title ever sells. And I said, what about the Bible? Uh, and they said, no, that doesn't <laughs> count. <laughs> so, so they renamed it Designing Virtual Worlds, and that's what it's called now. That's now, pretty good. Yeah, Wes. Oh, I just, I mean, your, your, your book is called The Bible for Game Designers. Um, since you bring that up, uh, how do you feel it stacks up now that it's been out for quite a while and been used uh, by a lot of courses and things? Um, are there parts of it that you'd like to revisit? Or uh, do you think that it still sort of serves as a good introduction to the, uh, to the world of, of designing? Um, it does, but um, the... Uh, I mean, it was written in 2003, so um, a lot has happened since then. Um, like World of Warcraft's been <laughs> been released, for example. Um, much more academic work's been done than has been done there. So that um, all the chapters there that are talking about um, muds as looked at from um, different academic perspectives nowadays there, there are many many more papers and I even mean, I can't possibly read them all um, but back then I had read them all um, and, and there was a point when I'd written them all but uh, the so it's, it's, it's gone out of date obviously it had to go out of date I and mean, it mentions com computer games that are, that are being written like um, Star Wars Galaxies which was written they got released and ran a decade or so and then uh, got shut down so um, it is out of date there, but when I wrote it, uh, my idea was I wanted um, an early reference book so that people in the future would be able to look back and see what things were like. So I was thinking um, with cinema, there were some early books um, which established the vocabulary that cinema used. Um, and... I wanted something equivalent to that for virtual worlds. And I thought, well, either I wait for someone else to do it or I do it myself. Um, and if somebody else does it, then they might get it wrong. So I'll do it myself and then I'll get it wrong. Um, so um, that's what I did. I, I wrote the book um, and uh, it, yeah, it's, it, it still, still sells copies to this day, well, mainly on eBay, but it still sells them. 
well, I'm looking forward to picking up a copy myself. And I guess just more broadly, I'm, I'd like to ask about your interest in virtual worlds and uh, what first sparked your desire to create them and be a part of them. And then just as two tangents to that, what are some of the principles behind the effective design of a virtual world? And um, how, how have virtual worlds changed and uh, how have their places, their place in our lives changed over the last 20 years or so okay well i'll start answering the first question and then i'll have forgotten what the other two questions were so you'll have to ask that's how i one. work too <laughs> yeah yeah right so the first question what was that about um something to do with rabbits wasn't it or oh, i don't know was it maybe uh, artichokes I, no okay so the begin <laughs> the first virtual world right why did we write mud um the basic reason is because we didn't like the real world um, we, um, it, it wasn't just me, it was me and, um, Roy Trubshaw, who was, um, older than me by a year at the University of Essex. So he did, he started off all the coding and I, I joined in after a couple of weeks, um, doing content and thing. My background's in games. I've written games, played games the whole time. I, I'd even got games published when I was, um, went to university in 1978. So I knew about games and, uh, Roy knew more about programming than me because he'd been programming for longer um but um i mean my background is i come from a small town on the east coast of yorkshire in england and it's remote there's nothing there like you have to drive an hour to get to the railway station nearest railway station which in in america doesn't sound a lot but in britain that's a lot um, it, we, uh, there was nothing there. Um, there's the sea to look out onto, but it, it was it was a, a poor town, um, like most coastal towns in the UK, and the, put the poor people there. And there was no prospects, nothing. It wasn't a very good environment for the future it was i mean when we were kids you don't know any different you think it's great you know we, we, we enjoyed playing in the sea and all this sort of stuff but when you get older and you, you uh and you think well what am i going to do with my life there's no jobs here i mean my summer job was um calling bingo in an amusement arcade and i was lucky to get that so from there i wanted i wanted to go to university but people in our from our school never went to university it, it, it just wasn't done um, in my year, there was a push to get us to go to university, and I wanted to go. Um, the uh, the thing is, though, if you want to go to university uh, and you 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 don't go to a good school, then it's very hard to get to university. It was back then. I mean, about one in seven of the population went to to university, uh, and we weren't told things that. We should have we should have been told like how to answer examination questions. If, if someone asks you an examination question, you know what's the integral between whatever and whatever and whatever, and you just give the answer pi by two because you've worked it out in your head. Um, we thought, well, we're going to get more marks for that because we've just written the answer down, having worked it out in our head. But no, there are six marks available. You got one for the right answer, and you didn't get five for the writing out for the writing down how you worked it out which you should have done we didn't know any of that stuff and it um because of that even though some of us were really smart we, we it was very um 
unusual to get to university. But I was um, exceptionally smart and did manage to get to university, despite all of that, to study computer science because uh, the country needed engineers and they were allow, uh, prepared to allow a few of the newer universities to teach computer science because um, we actually needed some. Um, middle class people didn't, didn't send their children to study computer science. They um, sent them to study uh, oh, economics or literature or politics, or if they were stupid enough uh, that, uh, that they couldn't do anything else than uh, sociology. Um, <laughs> computer science was a, um, a thing that they reluctantly allowed some poor people to do because we needed engineers and no one wants to be an engineer because we're not engineers are what they do they drive trains and climb telegraph poles so um some of us got to university despite the fact that people with our backgrounds weren't supposed to get to university there were some other people doing computer science who were really interested in it and did it in defiance of their parents because their parents wanted them to be lawyers or something. They'd say, no, I want to be a computer scientist. Um, so most of us were there um, because we were very smart and were interested in um, making the world a better place through creativity, essentially. Logic and creativity was what you needed to be a computer scientist. And we were treated as the lowest of the low in the university. No, everybody looked down on us. Um, and that's a situation that continued until the psychology department opened. Um, and we were just the lowest. Nobody, uh, we, we were regarded with pity by other people. Oh, you do computer science. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, me? No, no. I'm, I'm doing history of art. Oh, right, okay. Um, and um, we didn't like this. Um, we we couldn't um, couldn't speak to girls um, except the ones who did computer science, but they weren't girls. They were people. Um, uh, so if you wanted to speak to girls, you couldn't. Oh, you, you speak. I seemed to find out what you were doing. Then uh, okay, well, um, goodbye. Um, and the whole, I mean, it, it, everything was stacked against us. We, we did not like it. The world sucked. It was bad. Um, and there's no way out. I mean, the, the, the Brit, Britain has a class system to this day. And if you're born into the wrong class, then you're not going to get out. Um, there are other disadvantages. Like if you're born into the wrong gender, then it's a, it's a problem too. If you're born into the wrong race, then it's a problem because that can lock you into a class. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, yes, sure. I might have had a fifty percent better chance of uh, success than um, the the girls in, at my school, but three in a thousand isn't much better than two in a thousand. Uh, so we we didn't like any of this. That we saw the world as being unjust, unfair, a dreadful place. So we wanted to make a better world. And when most people say, "I want to make a better world," what they mean is they want to make the world better. We didn't. We wanted to make a better world, literally. We wanted to make in a computer a world that was better than the real world, a world that um, you could go and you'd be free, free to be yourself, free to be the person you wanted to be to, or to find out who, you, who, who your, your real person, real self was. Because you're not under pressure of um, what you look like or um, um, what you, you, um, 
genitals are shaped like or anything. You, know, it, you, you basically, you, were, you, you could just be and become yourself. We wanted to make that world just to get away from the world, just to give reality some kind of competition. That's what we wanted to do. That's what we were trying to do with mud. And of course, being angry young, in our case, men, um, the, the fact that um, this was completely impractical and we'd never have in, in enough power, computer power in our lifetimes to be able to do it was irrelevant. We just wanted to do it. And that's what we did. Um, well, so, you're getting uh, me pumped up about what Wes and Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm getting a bit pumped up myself, so I have to calm down now. Hmm. No, no, no. Um, stay, stay at that um, level. Because so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's basically why we created MUD. Um, that's one of three different... Um, genesis stories that's the art genesis story which is the truest of them all the um the craft one is basically telling talking about how the software that we worked on needed to be put together and how we would do it the design one is how you go about making a, a world to say things to players and to communicate things to players um but the art one is why would you do this in the first place and that's why we did it in the first place as, as you were talking about that, it, it made me think of this recent um, book and movie, Ready Player One. Are you familiar oh, yeah. with that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Could you kind of relate to the, the main character there as, as he lived in this kind of dystopian um, uh, like motor home thing and, and just existed pretty much in, in the virtual world? It's, it's sort of like mm. the thought experiment of what you're describing taken to mm. an extreme. No, it sounds like. no it's not no. quite the same. Okay. Because I didn't want to play a virtual world. I wanted to make a virtual world. Oh, um, right, right. Um, I wanted to... Um, when you create a, a reality, and that's what virtual worlds are, they're self-contained realities running under, um, with their own independent physics, that makes you a god of that reality. And there, when you make that world, you, you are... In, in the making of the world, shaping all the possibilities that can happen within that world. If you're playing in a world, then you're exploring all the possibilities within that world, but there are some things that the physics of the world prevent you from doing. By making the world, I shape the physics, so I, I create the boundaries within which people operate. And in that sense, um, people who design virtual worlds are the gods of those worlds because they're the ones who decide how the the, the world's physics operates and that, that's what and then like the technical definition of a god is it's someone who controls the physics of reality now i wanted to be able to do that because um if i was just building a world willy-nilly randomly then yeah i mean i would probably just made it just like the real world because um, that way people are going to get more immersed in it because they don't have to do so much thinking but what's the point of having a world that's just like the real world in Ready Player One yeah the guy's poor in the real world um, in reality but when he goes into the virtual world well he's still not really all that rich is he, is he I mean if everybody's in the same virtual world they take reality in with them um, they, uh, and it's not separate enough he's still a young kid in that virtual world yeah he's, he might be um, advancing based on the strength of his character and so on but there are plenty of people there who are immensely wealthy and who are buying their ways to things because they've got the, the wealth that they brought in from the real world and that's not really independent um you, you want the uh, the ideal is for the virtual world 
to be a, a separate space so that when you meet someone in the virtual world, that's the person you're meeting. It's not the person in the real world acting as a, in the virtual world, um, using the character as a conduit, just to, to adding a level of indirection between you speaking. No, that's the person that you, you should be speaking to. That's what I wanted. Um, so it's not quite the same as Ready Player One. Um, um, the, the virtual world that was created there, uh, it doesn't have any of the problems that they re that they would have had had they made that world in real in reality. And you know, there's no gold farmers or anything like that there for a start. But um, you would have got that in a real world. Um, it, it, if we'd have made a virtual world like that one, then there would be people in there trying to make money uh, of value in the real world because reality always wins. But I didn't want reality to win. Well, I love that, and that uh, your story as it takes shape, reminds me um, less of Ready Player One at this point and more of, say, the story of Dr. Robert Ford or his partner Arnold in HBO's prestige drama uh, Westworld. Mm -hmm. He's also a shaper of a world. Yeah. And just something interesting that the show's creators have him say, which I would like to check with a real creator of worlds about is, he, he says that his goal was to give something like maximal freedom. There were a hundred original narratives and storylines and 50 were good and 50 were evil and the good ones were totally pushed to the side. And something very interesting that uh, Wes and I talked about last night, talking about Harry Potter and the Order, or excuse me, and uh, the fourth one, uh, not the Order of the Phoenix, but the Goblet of Fire, was that Dumbledore, who is the figure of God in Harry Potter as our thesis, turns away from the Slytherins when they don't clap for Harry, that he sort of allows them their conceit to be dark, like Robert Ford allows these people in Westworld to do as they want. And so I just want to dig into that question of what is, what is your goal, your ultimate goal in providing a virtual space? So you, you say you want people to be who it is that they most are. So does that mean maximal freedom of expression that they are no, freer? No, no. Um uh, max, maximum freedom of expression um, is uh, having the freedom to express doesn't mean you've got anything to express. Um, the thing <laughs> is, um, the um, it's, it's to do with identity. Who are you? Who are you really? And yeah, who are you? Well, yeah, it's just uh, yeah, Richard A. Bartle, yeah, Professor of Computer Game Design, University of Essex, PhD, BSc, Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, Fellow of British Computer Society, uh, Higher Education. Oh, all these different things. Yeah, yeah, that's a label. But who am I? Um, well, there's the me who's currently talking to you, who's um, kind of like a pompous academic um, telling you things that if you were students, which isn't really uh, a good thing, then there's me who's the uh, father who's bossing the um, my kids around, telling them to do things that really they knew anyway, and I know they know, but I'm just trying to reinforce it in case they forget. And then there's me who's um, the son who's um, trying to avoid having to do stuff my mum tells me to do. Uh, there's me, the, the educator at the university. There's me, the researcher. There's all these different me's, but who's the real me? And the, um, the psychologists say, well, you know, re, um, identity is a, is a construction and, uh, and it's, it, it's all um, 
just different ways of trying to your, of your consciousness trying to uh, justify yourself but that's not how i th i think it is i think that there is a core entity a core being that is something about you each individual which is that individual encapsulates it um, and th there's a core being and that is who you are the problem is how do you find out who you are because you've got to explore and to explore you've got to take risks and if you take risks in reality then they bounce back at you and they and and you make a mistake and and that's it i mean i one of these days i'll have made some joke to my students they'll have recorded well it, the whole lectures are recorded they'll just pick that recording out put it online and before i know it i've lost my job for all i know um there's so many so many things that are taken out of context but really that you, people have a sense of identity they have a sense that somewhere there is who they really are and they can be who they are and you might define it in terms of academic qualifications or how many um how many goods you own you know how how, how much wealth you have or how many children you have or how many friends you have but these are just ways around around it they're, they're just different lenses of, of looking at it where people are they're defining themselves yes you, you define yourself in terms of i don't know your sexuality your gender your race if that wasn't was a thing um there's all ways you can define it in terms of but they're really just angles that are coming in on the same thing the, the core who am i these are things that may have shaped you but they're not who you are who are you and when you go into a virtual world you can make your stupid racist jokes and find out what the consequences of it are and then whoops oh that was bad i'm not doing that again and come back again as a new character reinvent yourself and as you play you come to um your character that you're playing changes because um you're treated in different ways by the other people playing there's validation and there's negative validation and as you're playing you're able to to look at yourself as others see you and that's not an opportunity you have in in the real world but it is one you get in virtual worlds. you can see yourself as others see you you can adjust your real self to match your virtual self and your virtual self to match your real self and as you play more and more the two become together until eventually um they're the same you are your character your character is you and that's you in the virtual world that's not a character you're um, playing that's you in that world and that at that point that's when you're immersed in the world because that's you, you've got an identity now could just be hill climbing you might have just found a, a local maximum there might be a, a, a deeper one uh, that if you play a different game with a different um set of starting conditions it goes up a different hill and it finds an, another version of you which is truer to the real you but that sense of identity that of, of who you are the freedom to be yourself is what everybody wants i mean everybody wants that that they want sovereignty over their own their own life and if you can um, achieve that through play then um well that, that why wouldn't you I mean, that's that's what you want that's what we were trying to create now i mean i'm able to articulate it far better now than i could at the time um at the time we roy and i we, we 
didn't really discuss it. We just knew what we wanted and we wanted the same thing. And we knew that each other were thinking the same way and we never really just discussed the philosophy of it. We just went for it. And, and now, yes, of course, now I've read enough academic papers that I can um, use the, all the you know, hero's journey stuff and everything, explain all this. But ultimately, it was I, all I wanted was for people to be able to be and become themselves. And that's why we created MUD. Um, if you look at other genres, there are different paths to do it. There are different resonances that you can do, the story resonances and so on. Um, the only one that acts that there are two ways to to self-actualize well three i suppose one of them is um some kind of um, religious teaching sitting and meditating emptying your mind and um until there's nothing left uh that wouldn't work for me i can't empty my mind i, I my mind is is who i am i don't want to become to become a, a nothing in order to find out i'm a something that that's useless to me but it, it works for some people Another way is to be um, shot at, really. So um, when you're forced to act because your life is in real and present danger, then that's a good way to find out who you are, who your friends are. Um, the, the, the problem with that is that if you get shot at, you might actually get shot. So all these people coming back from, um, from wars, yeah, some of them will have self-actualized through that. Another whole bunch would have failed to do it because they got killed and they never came back. Some will come back with um, mental health problems caused by um, the, the, the stresses of uh, trying to survive. Um, so those have got dangers. But in a virtual world, those dangers aren't there because... If anything terrible happens, if you do anything dreadful or, 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 or things go terribly wrong, you just quit and start again. It, but you can't do that in real life. Um, if, you, if, you, if you quit reality, you're not coming back. Uh, so virtual worlds are like the first time that people have ever in, in all of humanity been able to create... Um, themselves it, it, to, 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 to realize their dreams as in to make their dreams real uh, that's what virtual worlds let you do that nothing else does un unless it's going to be um, you, you end up doing nothing or you end up um, risking your life so um, that's an interesting that's an interesting framework to think about kind of what's going on when you're in one of these games you're you're sort of experiencing something which in real life would be tremendously dangerous, but would, which is just play within the game, right? And, and as you describe sort of creating the game and, and setting those parameters, um, I, I'm brought back to that word dungeon, like mm. the, the idea that it's a dungeon and that that sort of has those overtones of, of like mythic, you know, adventures and, and Tolkien mm. worlds and things. How do you feel like that compares to a world, um, I don't know, something that's more like, super uh you know space uh science fictiony kind of world does it have to be something like that or could it could it be a world that looks kind of like the real world that you're well well around? it could do yeah um so the, so the d the dungeon um that's nothing to do with actual dungeons the reason it was called 
a multi-user dungeon is because Roy was trying to think of a name that would um, express to people who didn't know what mud was, what it was. And um, it was, so it was like a multi-user text adventure game. But at the time, um, the text adventures didn't have a name. Um, the, the best one was Zork. Um, which had come out recently and it had been um, uh, ported into Fortran under the name Dungeon. So Roy thought that the genre of games would be called Dungeons after, after Zork. So he, he called it multi-user Dungeon, meaning it's like, uh, a, like these single-player games, but it's multiplayer. That's why he called it. I mean, he knew it wasn't the same thing. There's a, there's a, a category difference between the two but in order to um, have a name that helped explain what it was he that's why he called it mud and it because it's it was an acronym that made a, a word so that was pretty good um anyway in the end it turned out that they weren't did these games didn't call get called um dungeons they didn't get called zorks they get they got called adventures so that didn't work out but that's where the d came from um now uh, the 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 reason that mud went with um what today we would call fantasy uh hmm. okay so there wasn't really much of a fantasy genre back then um there weren't many books in the area there were ones uh, there was Tolkien, obviously there were uh there was the conan ones by robbie howard there were fritz Leiber's book there was a few um by uh, Anne McCaffrey, that sort of um, fantasy kind of world, but there weren't many at all. Um, and when uh, um, it fell to me to decide what uh, what the genre for mud was going to be, and I had a number of options. Um, I quite liked um, the uh, uh, France in the era of the French musketeer, Three Musketeers. I quite liked uh, the um, story, the world um, of the stories of Scheherazade, you know, the Thousand and One Nights quite liked um, Camelot, uh, that, that period. Um, I also liked um, um, Escaping from Prisoner of War Camp um, because that's got a definite end to it. Um, but what I eventually went with was English folklore, which is nowadays we would call that fantasy. Um, but for me, it was folklore. And it was folklore which had um, which I knew because my mother used to tell me stories that she'd made up. So um, I felt comfortable with that. And the thing about fairy tales, if you like, is people know them. So they know sort of what to expect, but they don't know exactly what to expect. So you get this sense of disquiet, this um, ever present could be dangerous. So when you're, when you're, you're playing the game yeah you see something which you recognize out of um english folklore uh whether it's um some kind of maybe a, a dwarf or something like that although that's more nordic but um or dragons which i suppose more welsh uh, but it, it, these things which people are, you've got a sense of of what they are but you don't know how it, exactly what this one's going to be like so you have this disquiet about it um 
animated dead and so on, and skeletons that come to life, that sort of stuff. Uh, and um, that ultimately became called fantasy because that's where Tolkien got his inspiration from the same things. I mean, obviously, he much better read on it than I am. Uh, or, um, yeah, and I am rather than, <laughs> certainly more than I was at the time. Um, so um, the reason it's, um, it's like uh, uh, is a Tolkien-esque world isn't because I read Lord of the Rings three times in my teens, although I did. It's because his sources were the same as mine. Um, or should I say my sources were the same as his, which is um, the, the, the folk knowledge of the, of the, the, the country. Um, and the reason I went with that is because it allowed, it had this sense of disquiet in it, uh, this sense of knowing but not knowing, think things resonating at times but dissonance at times. Uh, because that's what I wanted to reflect, um, the, the, the individual playing the game. Some of the things they'd be doing would be resonating with their character, and some of the things that would be dissonant. The character would be doing things which, which made a bad tune. So I wanted that resonance-dissonance thing, and I took that to the game design, because I, I wanted the game to reflect it. And I used um, time as a metaphor for danger because I realised that you can't just plonk something in the game and players um, are expected to know that's really deadly, don't go near it. Um, so um, I made it that the older things were, so the more distant from the present, the more dangerous they were. So when you started to play the game, you, you started off in a woodcutter's cottage and it was oh, like 1930s, something like that. And as you went further away, you might find like um, a forest, which is, you know, forests, they can be any age, really. The river running through it, rivers always mean time, passage of time. And then you get to, a, there's a tin mine, so a tin mine, what, like 1700s and so on. The further down you go, that's where you, um, it starts getting older. The, it's not been cut so much as it's been carved. The, um, uh, that's where the, all the dwarfs live, and of course they live in something which is much older than uh, the regular tin mine thing. Um, when out to sea, there would be um, an island with a wrecked galleon on it, so we're going back to the 1500s there. And if you go further out to sea, you get to an island, there's a ring of stones on it, so that's like really druidic times. You know that that's going to be dangerous because it's so old. Um, but I never told the players that. I never said age is a metaphor for... Um, danger i just made it that it was so whenever i was adding something i was thinking should i um what period is this going to be in who's going to find it how am i going to um flag it so that the 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 era is um it matches the um the danger so um and when when i added content to the east of the original land and it starts off with this uh, there's a there's a pub there and in there which is uh oh probably um late 1800s kind of, of time so it's not that dangerous but there is there are some dangers there um then you go up and um someone else wrote for me um because uh, we were in the game commercial at that point he wrote an italianate house and that's probably another sort of um 1700s rather than renaissance and it's not really dangerous but it it things around it are dangerous and then 
um, when you start getting to the really dangerous areas, it's things like a pagoda and, um, and, and ruined um, religious buildings and things. And you know, anything that's a ruin, you know it's going to be old. So yeah, I don't want to go in there. Um, now these are were design decisions that I made because of what I wanted to say to the players. And that's what designs, what, what you do when, you, when you're designing. It's not a case of people playing a game and, and all you do is make the mechanics so they have fun. Um, well, sadly, that is actually the case most of the times because designers don't seem to realize what they can do. Um, it, when a, an author writes a story, they don't just write a story um, as an action-packed adventure with no subtext at all. Well, I suppose they might nowadays with um, Kindle Direct and stuff. But what literary authors are trying to do is to say something to their reader. They're trying to explain express some concept or some belief or some uh, make some comment about the real world or some comment about the art of writing stories they're trying to make that uh, communicate to their readers through the story now game designers do the same thing good ones they 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 could do anything. I mean, why am I, why am I a game designer? Why, why don't I write stories? Uh, why don't I um, do interpretive dance? Uh, why, don't I, why don't I sing operas? Why don't I do any of these other things I could do? I mean, if I really wanted to change the real world for the better, why am I not driving trucks to um, bring aid to people in Yemen? And the thing is that for game designers, game design is their medium of artistic expression. They can say things through games, in particular through the gameplay, that they can't say any other way. So the gameplay is what carries the, um, the, the load uh, of, of the game because gameplay is the only thing that games have got that nothing else has got. So you're speaking to players in terms of systems. Now, in MUD, the system that I was and Roy were, were making was essentially you can do what you like in this game, but there will be consequences. The consequences of your actions will reflect back on you. If you go around killing other players, and this was a game with permadeath and open world PvP, then sure, you can do that, but do not expect your character to live very long because sooner or later, someone is going to take that character down and, they, and you are not going to like it. You are not going to survive. And if you keep bringing that character back, it will be smashed every single time because you are offending the world. And so from that, people can, will learn the lesson that, yeah, it may be fun to be a, to be a jerk, but it's not a long-term strategy for survival. And that was being carried, that message was being carried through the gameplay. That's one of the, the things that we're consciously doing was making this message pass through the gameplay. But yeah, that's excellent because one of the hypotheses that we've been working with is that part of the role of a game is to help uh, a human develop their level of consciousness and to go from, say, more of a subjective particular level, like that hometown uh, place that in so many RPGs and in MUD you start in, to a more objective um, fuller range of consciousness where uh, eventually you say fight the principle of all evil at the end and thus fully understand yourself in in your reality by fully living out a narrative within reality and so as you learn about the world you learn about yourself and so I wanted to ask you to what extent um, 
that too was, I mean, is that just saying exactly what it is you've been saying about the purpose of creating this world? And um, I just also was very interested in why it seemed natural to you to, um, as you progress from your home, you go from the present deeper into the past. It just, it recalls to me the dream that Carl Jung had that made him uh, uh, sort of split from Freud, where he was going down from one level to another in a house, and he went from like uh, Switzerland in the 20th century down to like 17th century France, down to the Middle Ages, and down into uh, like sort of a paleontology or, you know, like a dinosaur level area. And he understood that that meant that the psyche was built up from the ground up, sort of like a computer. And I wonder to what extent you would agree with or disagree with the notion that part of what a game does is help you to boot up your consciousness in that way, to go from the strictly subjective to the objective, to go from your personal situation in which you find yourself to understanding some of the major principles of the world and, and uh, some of the forces that shape it potentially good and evil being the ultimate ones. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the, the game, obviously, uh, like it depends on the book or, or, the, or the movie or, or whatever. The, um, my, um, my aim was to um, strip away the unnecessary, the things that the, the, the chains, if you like, that are holding you down, that are forcing you to move in a particular way and allow you to move in any way you want to find out where the right, the right place for you is. Um, and yes, um, people find out who they are and it turns out that some of them really are jerks and you don't want them around there, but at least they know they're jerks. <laughs> uh, but the, um, the thing about the past, yeah, that is interesting. Um, because if you do, um, I mean, I wasn't aware of the young thing. I'm not um, that well read. Uh, but if you do, um, you see, the thing about uh, going backwards in time and becoming more dangerous is because um, you're removing the modern protections. You're removing the defenses yes. that have been built up. Some of those defenses are physical defenses, but some of them are social uh, defenses, and I suppose you could argue psychological ones. But I'm, I mean, I don't, um, I don't, I don't know enough about that to make that assertion. But um, some of the defenses that you're removing are ones that are in place, and they're holding you in in position. It, it's like, it's it's as if you're the def the defense is is a prison. Um, I've put myself behind these walls in order not to be harmed. If you go back in time, the walls aren't there anymore, so you can be harmed. But you might, uh, first of all, harming doesn't necessarily matter because you can, you can come back. But, uh, or as a different, a different person, you can come back. Um, but um, through that kind of... Um, I struggle to use the word harm through that, that, that kind of attack you can um, you get, get a better sense of who you are you are no longer protected by um, some code of conduct you are protected by your own sense of morality or your own sense of right or your own sense of in, uh, justice and injustice so those are the things that start to kick in 
when you've no longer got the um, uh, protection of the law or the church or whatever. Um, and I was aware that when you go back in time, you are stripping away protections and um, stripping away contexts to leave more primitive contexts. Um, I wasn't considering that from the from a psychological perspective you know stripping away the uh, these skin each layer of the onion until what you got left is nothing in the middle well, i know i'm not postmodernist in that there are, i think there is something in the middle um but uh yeah i mean it's an interesting point i'm 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 i wouldn't disagree with it and to that point as well um it seems like that's part of what's so important about continually creating new worlds as well because like once a world is in place for a while then it too becomes one of those older more dangerous places in a way right it's like you the the threshold for entering into that world seems to be uh raised a bit as people maybe are less uh familiar with the kinds of of folk tales and stories and things than um th than you were when you made it right they would create a world which would be more reflective of their sort of immediate environment as a as a place to sort of enter into before beginning to like progress back well, into more dangerous yeah. Yeah. if they're also, if they're self-aware yeah. as an artist then yes if they're not then they may just do it because they just like science fiction or they just like mech warriors or something you know they, they just like superheroes that may be all they need and in creating the world that may be how they come to understand why they like mech warriors they why they want to, to to create a world in which people are protected by a an almighty powerful shell because they're vulnerable inside uh, or why people need to be super to have superpowers um are they superpowers in the sense of um the real world needs um needs a god to keep it or is it the, in the sense of the, in the real world everybody needs to realize that they're a god i mean which one is it why are you creating it where's the dialectic what are you trying to argue so um yes if i were creating a world today then would i go with the folklore well probably not because today most people's experience experiences have been through the media uh, and the media hasn't been fairy stories uh, as it would be in uh, a while ago the media's um computer games so things that people that the tropes that people understand are tropes from games and you so today you might be creating a world which would um instead of um drawing on folk tales would be drawing on um oh it, it would probably be um drawing on on, on threads of, of 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 story story threads little pieces of um a piece of story little vignettes which are strung together they're falling from the sky little pieces and because you see them so often but they're all disconnected but they're all the same this game here it's the same as that game there but they've just reskinned it and so you've got all the patterns and all the patterns and, and what i'd be saying trying to if i was trying to make a game today as an 18 year old like i was but then i'd be trying to say recognize things see what things are for themselves understand them because if you can recognize the world then you can and recognize patterns in the world then you can come to understand them you can analyze them you can think about them 
and you can reflect on them and then you can look at the patterns in your own thoughts why am i thinking these same things that i always think why am i not thinking something else is it just habit or is it actually the right things to be thinking am i doing it because i don't want to get called out by i don't know left-wing or right-wing politicians um, am i doing it for an easy life or is it because i really actually believe this and is is the logic behind it something i invest in or is it just something that i feel i should do to signal virtues so this is the kind of thing i would be doing if it, if it if i were an 18 year old today with the capacity to make a virtual world but i'm not so i can't right and so you you make me want to ask uh what I, I think is sort of a bombshell of a question. Um, one, one part of this I think will be a kind part. One part I think will be a difficult part. Yeah. So you, you, you said earlier that part of what you do when you play is you learn who you are. So I want to A, ask, what do you learn then by designing one of these games that you don't learn by playing? Or do you learn the same thing? And then I want to sort of ask you this question because I, I feel like you know, you're, this is a great conversation. You're, you're very interesting, smart, and funny. And I, I have to say, especially at this time in the morning, I really appreciate how funny <laughs> Oh, it's the afternoon for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's so often the case because we're over here on the West Coast of America and you're, of course, in uh, Britain or England, however is best to say it. Um, and uh, yeah, well, in any case, so we often like to say that the world is unfair and we could and we either attribute that to economic causes or theological causes even uh, as you were saying about britain there's a class system that you can be born into and that doesn't necessarily mean that things are fair and people can make even the same claim about say uh people even say how can god be fair like you look at the old testament you look at the book of job and people are often like how is this a fair situation and so i want to put that question to you as sort of a a designer of a world. Are you fairer or less fair than the world in which we currently live, this sort of physical world that we've defined it as? Um, but, and just as a caveat to that question, or a limitation to it, if reality, if this world in which we live is based on fixed laws, can you be fairer than reality? Because that does seem like it's the goal, but is it possible? Okay. So your first question was, um, if, um, how do designers come to know themselves? And um, the, the, the hero's journey, if you like, for designers is in the creation of the world. So the designers come to understand themselves through the act of creating the world, through the act of creating it and observing how it's played. They come, come to, to understand themselves. So when you, if you're making, uh, uh, in general, if you're making a work of art, you know what the vocabulary is. So you know what the words are, and then you use the, the artwork to say something to the, to the consumer of the artwork. So if it's a painting, you know what the symbols mean, and you do the painting. And then the consumer looks at the painting and divines what it is that you're trying to say. Um, and you, through making the painting, are trying to figure out what it is you're trying to say. And the painting is what you've actually said. This is what I've said. It's not in text, because if it was in text, then I wouldn't need to do the painting. I'd just tell you. you know, why do you write poetry? Why do, um, well, I write poetry so that I can tell people what I think. If I could just 
say it in words, I wouldn't have to write poetry. I mean, it's the, the, the artwork is, the, is what you are trying to communicate. And in the creation of the artwork, you are having to go through some form of understanding what you want to say, but not as words, as, as the art form. So in games, yeah, when, you, um, when you, you're designing a game and, you, and you're putting something into the gameplay, well, there are many things you can put into the gameplay. And ultimately, at some point, it's going to come down to you could have done this, you could have done that. Both are equally well. Why did you do that one? And you have to say, I did that one because that's just how it has to be. I don't know why it has to be, but if it's not that way, it's not right. So game designers come to know themselves much the same as other artists do which is in through the creating of their art um that's the game designers who are creating for art but if I mean, th most designers these days start off by players they, so they play games and then they through the playing the games i think this game could be improved that, that could be better and so they make uh, they, they, they start thinking about designing or making games which are ones that they would like to play. And after a while, the shift comes from wanting games that they want to play to wanting to write games that people would want to play. Not just... I mean, obviously, if you make a game that you want to play, at least one person's going to like it. But if you make a game that lots of people want to play or maybe not lots of people but not necessarily you you're making the game because you're enjoying the creation creative aspect of making the game that's suddenly that's a shift from being a player as designer to being a designer and then um as you learn you, the, the 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 basic craft of design eventually you'll be you come along and you and you'll start to express things to the to the players through your design but ultimately, why are you designing games? Did you just fall into it? Um, did it happen by accident? Um, are you um, some accomplished artist in another field and you're looking for new challenges? Um, are you doing it because um, the government told you to do it? Well, ultimately, you're a designer because you're a designer. I mean, that's who you are. That's the reason you are a game designer is because you are a game designer. That's the answer to the question. So... You have to do you have to work your way through to get to the end to find out why you're you 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 do that and and the answer is because that's how I speak through the processes uh, through the interactions through in some sense in some sometimes it would through the fiction sometimes it might be through the music but ultimately it's through the gameplay that's what the game designers is it's uh, they are people who talk through games so there's sort of answered my answer to the first part of the question. Now you asked the second question and this was um, to do with uh, whether we've made a world better than the real world. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, the thing <laughs> is, okay. Um, I'm actually working on a, on a, um, a book at the moment. Well, not right at the moment. Obviously I'm speaking to you on the, on the call but uh i'm working on a book um finished the first draft gave it to my daughter she gave it back and said rewrite this entire book so um that, that'll be what i'll be doing 
<laughs> but uh, but basically the way it works is like this. Okay, so um, we are making realities and we're the gods of those realities. So we're making these realities um, and we make them as better places. We want them to be better places. You know, this, this, this world's no good. I want a better world. So I'm going to make a reality which is better. That's why we make them. We want them to be better than the current world. We take things out of the real world that we don't need. Um, and we add things into them which we do want, but you can't do in the real world. Um, and, well, I keep, I keep calling it the real world, but I should really just call it reality because <laughs> is it any more real than, than a virtual world from the perspective of an inhabitant of that virtual world? So we create these worlds and let's say we make these worlds and we put the non-player characters in there and we, we add a bit of artificial intelligence to them, make them a bit clever. Um, after a while, we can make them very clever. We could make them as clever as we are. Um, I mean, do you want 500 years? Do you want 5,000? Do you want half a million years? We can make them as clever as us. We could make them cleverer than us because we've got computers. And we can create a world full of people who are really smart. But that gives us a whole bunch of issues. Like, well, are we going to kill them? Um, or are we just going to let them live forever? Uh, because if we define the parameters of the world, then it's up to us to decide whether each being that lives in that world lives forever or if it's going to decay and die. If it does decay and die, what are we going to do? Well, just bits in the database, disappear, off they go. Or are we going to store them somehow so that we could bring them back later on if we wanted to? Um, what if the world um, costing us a bit of money, we want to switch it off? Are we going to switch it off? If we switch it off, we just killed every living thing in that world, which we've created. They wouldn't have existed if we hadn't created them. But having created them, we've created sapient beings. Should we switch it off? Is it enough that we just save it so that in the future they could, in theory, we could reboot the whole world and they wouldn't know any different because it would be seamless to them? Um, and then we, 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 so we have to make these decisions about that world and how we're going to treat it. Now, we've been making these worlds for 40 years, and so we know something about what you can and can't implement. We know some things that are easy to implement and some things that are not easy to implement. We know some things that you would do it this way, you wouldn't do it that way. That is a stupid, bad way. No, 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 don't let anybody write, overwrite the code, things like that. Um, so by looking at um, virtual worlds, we've now got some design principles. How do you make a reality? This is how you make a reality. But then we can say, hmm, how about if instead of looking at us as the gods of the non-player characters world, what if we're the non-player characters and the people who are the gods of a higher reality who made this reality? What, do, what can we um, say about them? Well, there are some things that are quite clear. Um, the people who live in, the non-player characters in a, in a virtual world know nothing about us. They don't know, uh, if I put intelligent people into mud, they wouldn't know that there was that it was me who did it they, they wouldn't know there were two people who did it they would look around themselves they might think no one did it i mean that would be the sensible thing to do um 
there's no evidence that anybody's made anything. If they did start to speculate on whoever did something, then they might look at the world and say, well, this is, this is pretty bad. And they might think that we were evil people because we put in all these creatures to cause them distress. So they would be um, making suggestions about us, which we know nothing about. Uh, they, they know nothing about us. So they're just speculating. Likewise, if, what do we know about the higher reality? We know nothing. We've got no access to that reality. That reality would have access to us, but we have no access to that reality. So we're just conjecturing. Now, if in our virtual world, a player from our reality went into that world and started telling everybody, well, actually, you know, this game world's, um, you're living in a world that was created by this, these couple of guys, Trubshaw and Bartle, and um, they did all these things. They're really good, really cool. You like them. Um, Oh, and um, they, they could tell you, they could tell those players anything. So that the player could tell those non-player characters anything. They could be telling the truth. They could just be making it up. They could say, yeah, yeah, uh, this world, it was made by this guy called um, Brian. And um, yeah, he's, uh, he's a really cool guy. And, uh, and when, you're when you die, um, you get to go to his world. And it's a wonderful world. It's a world of um, dancing girls and, um, and, and people who've got... Uh, furry tongues i mean you can say anything and they've got no way of knowing whether it's true or false it's just a case of do they believe or not do they have faith in what this non-player character has said to them or not and it's the same thing that we have here we have no access to a high reality now the thing is if we wanted to we could actually give individual characters in our virtual world access to reality because we could build a robot in reality and then we could attach the non-player character's AI to that robot. And then suddenly, whoa, they're in reality. At least their consciousness is in reality. So they can move around and do all sorts of things. They could even go and press the button that switched off their own world. Um, be a bad move, but they could do that. Um, so that sort of thing's possible. But that's not the sort of thing that ever seems to have happened. Um, well, I say it's not happened, but it ha if you listen to all people's thoughts about what might have been uh, or what is the uh, higher reality many of them do that um ancient greek myth plenty of people go up to mount olympus plenty of people go down to hades and come back to our world if you look at nordic myths yeah people are always going up to Yggdrasil and then going out to some other world and then coming back again i mean it happens all the time so what we have in what you might call the Abrahamic religions is different to what you get in other religions. And some of those make sense in a virtual world capacity. We, in other words, we can explain how that would work, how it would be implemented. In other ones, you can't really explain how they'd be implemented. I mean, the um, ancient Egyptian um, story of Ptah, um, he willed himself and the world into being at the same time. Well, that means that if he makes any changes to that world, he's changing himself because the world is him. So he's, if he, if he does, if he moves in the slightest, he's changing the world. So that's probably why he's dead because he ain't going to move. Um, so by looking at what we know about implementation of worlds, we can figure out how different cultural perspectives on how the world was created came about. But it's more than that. Because we can now, if we've devised ethical codes that we're going to apply for dealing with our non-player characters, then we can look and say, well, what about the people who may or may not live in the higher reality? 
what ethical codes do they have looking around here? And you think, well, some of these things are um, pretty bad ideas. You know, that, the, the, the one that people would usually cite is the one about um, wasps burying their uh, um, larvae into living creatures to eat them from the inside out and um, things making children blind and things. Those aren't really the sort of things that we would put in a virtual world. If we did, um, or if they arose by accident, we'd probably want to take them out if, um, if we spotted it. If we didn't spot it, well, obviously, uh, we wouldn't take them out, but then we're not really... Um, we'd, we'd be omnipotent, but we wouldn't be um, omnipresent. We wouldn't know it was happening. So there's lots of things like that, that our knowledge of what we would do to a reality we create, we can now conjecture about anybody who created the reality in which we live live in um, another thing we could say is if i'm making a world because i i want people to play this world then obviously i want it to be better than the real world because if it's not better than the real world people just stay in the real world rather than playing my game world so i want my game world to be better than reality um, now that's not the only reason for creating a reality. There are other reasons, academic reasons, experimental reasons, um, playing with code reasons, but that's the reason um, I did it. That being the case then, um, you don't want to die and go to heaven because heaven's worse than reality because the people in heaven made reality to be better than heaven. So, okay, well that doesn't really fit them. Maybe then, um, uh, if reality had been created, it's for another reason. Uh, maybe it's um, for commercial reasons. That's the, the main reasons we have um, virtual worlds today. People have made it so they can make money. So for all we know in this world, we're worshipping deities from a higher reality who only made the game to make money. But then again, there may not be a higher reality. This might be the highest reality. Um, I mean, I'm not going to um, <laughs> insist on any arguments one way or the other, but the, the thing is that by looking at the relationship between the real and the virtual, you, you're a, you, it enables you to look at the real and the, the meta-real, if you like, the higher real. And this means that reality creation suddenly becomes more available as um, an experimental subject so um, the joke in the past used to be um, where the mathematician says to the university look um, you can't cut our funding because we're the, the the least expensive department in the university all I need is a piece of paper a pencil and a waste paper basket and then the theologian says no we are the least expensive because we don't need the waste paper basket <laughs> now the thing is that with, um, it, if the theologians can actually do experiments, if they can now create a reality and suddenly they find themselves as gods, that really crystallizes their, their thoughts. Now, oh, what, uh, uh, is it even moral to create such a world? And then you get into the philosophy of uh, what you were essentially asking in your question. Is it right to create this uh, a world? Could you create a world better than the current one? Well, that'd um, certainly be a good symposium topic. Perhaps, uh, <laughs> perhaps someday we can produce such a symposium: the ethics <laughs> of creation of virtual worlds. Well, there's, uh. there's two. There are two arguments to it. 
one of them says you should not create a world because um, that's um, hubri. You're um, attempting to be uh, to put yourself in the position of a god. You are not a god, you, um, you, um, and by creating a world that's um, taking on the aspects of a god, but really you're not. The worlds you're creating are part of reality. They're not separate from reality. You're just trying to separate them. So you should not do that. But the other side says, no, 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 no. Um, creating worlds is what you you must do because um, God or whoever it is. Um, let's let's go with the Abrahamic one created um, people in his own image. He is able to create realities. Therefore, by creating realities, you are taking the final step that makes you humans be the people you really should be. You are you are meant to be in God's image, and by creating worlds, you finally become God's yourself, and that's what you are supposed to do. So you've got this on the one side sense it's like sacrament, and in the other sense it's blasphemy, and it depends which attitude you want to take as to which one it is. Um, so there's there are there are two. That isn't my argument. That uh, argument came from a, a book I read oh, fifteen years ago. But um, it does. It is. It is a point. I mean, it's it's one or the other. Either you're um, by creating worlds, you're playing God, or um, well, you are playing God. But the question is, is that what God wanted you to do or not? And if uh, uh, that's assuming there is a God, well, and and the answer to that question is up to the individual and probably the lynch mobs. Well, I think we've really we've really gone to the heights and the depths in yes. this conversation, which is where we're always aiming to get to. And so I'm sorry that I don't have more time today to explore this, but, um, and I'll let Wesson on here in a second, but I, I, this has been one of, I think our best conversations. It's been an excellent conversation. Well, you say and conversation, but I think it's me who's been mainly talking. Uh, I haven't really let you get an edge, a word in edgeways, I'm afraid. I'm sorry about that. It's probably because I'm more awake right. than you. <laughs> Yeah, we have That's you on to learn true. from. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Um, we really appreciate it. We'd love to have you back on and kind of pick up here with you know, uh, yeah, well, of God and the implications for that. So, <laughs> thanks yeah, so much. I'll be too obliged. Yes. Yeah, and we can't wait to hear what your daughter's criticisms of the second draft of the book are. Just throw it in the trash can at this point, or try to <laughs> you know choose another topic. <laughs> no, no, it's not the topic. It's the structure of the book. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I'm. I'll be working on that with some students today on a much smaller scale. Um, the the essence is good, but the the institution is corrupt. So we need to, we're going to have to fix that up. Um, but this has been, this has been very enlightening and we have, uh, I mean, you have such a wealth of information. You're like, you're like a treasure chest times a thousand in a virtual world. And so we're going to have to keep coming back to you as often as really you have time for, um, because yes, like Wes was saying, this has been wonderful and we hope to have you back on and, um, we really, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you oh, very much. Happy to come. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, until next time, thank you very much. Take care. Oh, thanks. <laughs>